the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic. With comprehensive coverage and insightful analysis built around your teams, The Athletic delivers everything you need and every sports story that matters. Download the app today and get a personalized feed of exclusive, ad free content that you want. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription today. We are also sponsored by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, empowering professional athletes and top professionals in the entertainment industry, supporting their financial needs, adding financial solutions, building their financial plans, and of course, supporting prospective NFL and NBA athletes through the entire draft process. Find out more today about their pre and post draft loan program at morganstanley.com slash GSE. That's morganstanley.com slash GSE. Happy Friday, special edition of the Spot Track Podcast. Just too much to get to. Had to do three this week. We're going to bring in our great friend of the show, Emily Karen from Sportico. I've been putting this off until there's a little bit more clarity. I'm not sure we have, you know, a ton of clarity yet on name image like this, the nil. Coming out of the NCAA situation, we do have a Supreme Court ruling that is certainly favorable for the athletes, favorable for really students in general, in terms of how colleges and universities are going to have to start operating on a more global level, not just the name image likeness. Emily breaks down all of that, answers a bunch of uh, specific questions that I have in terms of where is this going, the companies that may be getting involved right now. Are we really ready for this? Even though July 1st, it sounds like maybe 6 to 18 states could be just pushing the gas pedal down with this nil thing. So back end of the show here, Emily has a nice discussion, as always, about the update with college sports and a little more, of course. But first, it's NBA season. Like I know the NHL just just uh, filled half of their Stanley Cup in terms of the Montreal Canadiens. Welcome back, Canada, by the way. Holy heck. Um, we'll get to that at some point for sure. It's, it's cer- certainly when the Stanley cup final is set, uh, there's a game seven tonight as we speak to fill the other half of that pie, but it's an NBA season right now. It's, it's where most of the drama is take away the, the sticky stuff in baseball and the ability for the NFL to use multiple helmets now, which is awesome from a marketing and branding standpoint. That's just the rich getting richer in my opinion there. More, more dollars in pockets, you know, fans are going to eat this stuff up for sure. Anything nostalgic in a, in a league that big and powerful is always going to sell some, some merchandise. So that doesn't need to be said much more. Here's where I want to go with the NBA because we're getting close. The, the Clippers kind of made things interesting in that series of Phoenix. I, we'll see what happens tonight with Atlanta and Milwaukee. It could, it could be a similar situation where, where Milwaukee sort of balances things out a little bit or, is this Trey Young thing real? And that's sort of the the must-see television part of this weekend with that Hawks-Bucks series. I'm stepping back a little bit because I'm watching the players on the court, and I'm sure many of you are too, and thinking, how the hell did we get here? <laughs> right? This is, you know, this this isn't LeBron, you know, no Durant now, no Curry, you know, no I mean, Kawhi's hurt. He's not out there. So there you just don't have the must-see star power. That were, that were so prevalently loose to this time of year with the NBA. That's just what dominates late postseason runs in the NBA is superstar, high-paid, high-marketable, well-known players. We don't have it. 
the ratings seem to be okay. I'm, I'm sure there's people out there saying, I don't know these players, I'm not watching. And I think the NBA is probably, you know, dealing with that. But Trey Young is making this whole situation must-see television. So here's what I did. I went back 10 years, which is really the sort of the threshold of our NBA data on Track. Anything before that is sort of murky. It's pretty good. A few, you know, two, three years below that. But if you're a premium subscriber and you've gone back that far, that 2010-11 season is sort of our cutoff in terms of where we have verified data for NBA salary caps and, and contract breakdowns and things like that. But that's a solid 10 years now. In fact, it's, it's an actual 10 years worth of seasons slash champions, which is what I'm going to reference here today. Here's the, here's the question I asked myself this morning. Who was the highest paid player on the championship winning team and where did that player rank in terms of that high pay? So for instance, in 2017-18, the Warriors went back to back, won the whole thing. Steph Curry was the highest paid player in basketball at that time. In the past 10 years, he's the only person to be that, the highest paid player and also win the championship. I'm talking average salaries, of course, which is basically give or take a few million, you know, the cap hit for that year. So the highest average paid player in the last 10 years has only won the championship once. Here's the rundown. I'm going to start in 2010. I'm going to bring you all the way up to last year's Lakers team. Then we're going to talk about the final four teams this year and how, as you might imagine, things are pretty different. Okay. So out of the 10 seasons, out of the last 10 seasons, six, seven, excuse me, seven of the 10 have a one through nine highest average player. Eight of the 10 have a top 10 average paid player, which means only two are out of the top 10. And here's the trivia question of all trivia questions if you're a financial sports nerd, okay? <laughs> the first time the Warriors won this thing in 2014-15, the highest average paid player on the Warriors at the time was David Lee, who was the 32nd highest paid player in basketball at the time. Things got markedly different thereafter, okay? So two years later, it was Durant, who was the eighth highest. And then, of course, Curry who was the single highest player. Here's your rundown. 2010, it was Dallas. Dirk was the second highest paid player. 2011, started the Miami run. Bosch and LeBron had identical contracts. They were the ninth highest average paid players in the year. They repeated the year after. They were the 10th highest average paid player that year. 13-14 was San Antonio's run. This is when Duncan took his discount. Tony Parker was the 35th highest average paid player in basketball. He was the highest average paid spur for that championship season. Okay? That's our Tampa Bay Rays situation. That's our Houston Astros. Okay, That's, that's the money ball. And it's because Duncan took a Brady. Duncan took a markedly less sizable contract to fit Parker in, to fit Ginobili in, to fit in a few other contracts, and to make this thing tick, not only for this championship run, but also for a few years thereafter. They stayed relevant. They didn't fall off a cliff until really 16, 17. Um, and even then, you know, Kawhi kind of kept them afloat for two more years. So that's our definition of value. Keep that in mind. 35th highest. Year after that was the David Lee, <laughs> the David Lee Warriors, if you want to call them that. Like I said, he was 32nd highest average paid. Then LeBron goes back to Cleveland 
on a new contract. He doesn't max out. He's the fourth highest average paid player at that time. Okay. They went and Cleveland wins the title that I mentioned Durant eighth Curry first. That Toronto team that, that acquired Ka- Kawhi and, and took it to the finish line. That was Kyle Lowry seventh highest. And then last year, LeBron and those Lakers, LeBron was seventh highest last year. So if we're talking the average over the past, actually, let's make this fair. Let's do the median of the past 10 champions, the median highest average paid player on the championship team, seven and a half out of 300 or so. So that bears out. That's what we've been saying over and over and over, which is superstars who are generally on veteran contracts, high paid contracts. Those are the guys that get it done. Okay. And the, really the, the, the one instance, the two instances over the past 10 years where it wasn't a top tenor, one was the Spurs where Tim Duncan just took a third of what he, he was worth at the time to make it all team friendly. So it was, it was a championship caliber team with team friendly contracts. And then Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, still on rookie contracts. Okay. And uh, David Lee just happened to be higher paid than them at the time because he wasn't on a rookie contract. That's it. So you had superstars on rookie contracts. That was, you know, Russell Wilson, Seattle Seahawks. That was the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. Like I said, that's your Astros. That's your Moneyball situation. That's good stuff. Um, everything else is top five, top 10, really top eight. And uh, your median over the 10 years is 7.5. So let's talk about the final four teams this year. What's going to happen in the next couple of weeks with this metric and our, and our next NBA champion? The Clippers, the one team you probably would think, all right, they've got some high-paid players. This, they've got to be alongside this trend. Kind of, kind of, except for when Paul George got here, he got here via trade. So he was already signed with Oklahoma City. In fact, he had just signed an extension, but when Kawhi forced him out of OKC. So his contract is somewhat older. And Kawhi's contract has been passed by by many, many guys. It's just, it's been an open floodgate of extensions when max contracts have become available. We're going to see plenty more in the next couple of weeks with Luca and Embiid tacking on and Julius Randle and things like that. There's just going to be a floodgate of more max contracts every single offseason. It's how the league operates right now. So Kawhi's Clippers contract is 15th. He's the 15th highest average paid player in basketball, even though he's the the highest average paid player on the Clippers. So they're 15. Let's talk Bucks. Giannis is a big, big extension kicks in next year. So he's still somewhat relatively cheap on 25 and a half million per year. The highest average paid player this year, specifically on the Bucks, is Middleton. And he's 11th. Not in the top 10. Let's talk about those Phoenix Suns. As you might imagine, it is Chris Paul. Everybody else is somewhat tempered, even though I think a few of those guys will get paid in the next 12 to 18 months when their rookie extensions slash veteran extensions are eligible. Certainly, they've all warranted a big-time payday. It is Chris Paul. Chris Paul is sixth in the league right now in terms of average pay. So he would be right with the trend. If the Phoenix Suns run the table, get this thing done, win the NBA championship, it would go right along with our metric here over the past 10 years. And then we've got the Hawks. <laughs> okay. And the Hawks are the 13 Spurs and the 14 Warriors on steroids. 
All right. Even even after making a free agent splash, uh, an offer sheet splash, a trade splash this past free agency season, they they pushed this off season as if they were ready to win, even though many of us thought they were a year away. I think, you know, myself included, I thought they were building a situation that was preparing them for 2022, where they would gain some experience this year and then really be able to push it and push that ceiling open next season. Uh, they're here. They've arrived. Trey Young has arrived a year early. It is breakout all over the place on this team, coaching included. The highest paid player on this team is Gallinari, who is the 52nd highest average paid player in, in the NBA right now. So by and large, this would be the best value championship team of the past 10 plus years, by and large. And it's really not even close. I think we all know that. That isn't, shouldn't be a surprise. I think the fact that it's 52 and the, and the previous high is 35 is really saying something. Because this isn't just, you know, yes, it's Trey Young, it's Kevin Herter, it's, you know, it's Hunter. There's some rookie contracts on this roster, no question. But there's also some veterans. There's also some veterans who probably took some slight adjustments. You know, none of these guys are maxed out. Capella's, Capella was cost-controlled because of his situation in Houston. Gallinari's been cost-controlled his entire career because he's sort of a one-trick pony. Bogdanovich kind of got run through the mill here with this restricted free agency situation from Milwaukee to back to Sacramento. It was just like a bit of a mess. And uh, look, the injuries have always been there too, so the red flags were sitting there too. Nobody's had to max out on this Hawks roster yet. It's coming. Okay, Trey Young is going to break the bank. There's no question about it. But they have they have peaked early. They have peaked before they've had to extend anybody to that holy cow max contract. And it's a heck of a value story. And they're a real team. They're a real threat. They're a bettable entity. If you want those odds, I'm sure it's probably too late to get the great odds because of what they did in game one. But must-see TV because of the style that they play, because of the competitiveness they give you, and now you've got this part of it. Now you've got a true financial underdog. Nothing like, you know, nothing like we've seen over the past decade plus. And uh, it's very, I'll be very interested to see who those final two are. You know, will it be Chris Paul, the savvy high-paid vet who, who brings his team to the finish line like we've seen so many times, the names I just railed off? Or will it be a more balanced effort like the Clippers have, who built for depth? They knew they weren't getting a max on Kawhi. They weren't getting a max on Paul George in terms of what the league is offering. You know, they have cost control based on what that salary cap is right now. And they were able to build depth around it. They were able to bring in Ibaka. They have Reggie Jackson, of course, Beverly. <clears throat> they were able to add longevity to this season, knowing that the injuries were going to be there, knowing that they don't have one or two players who are at the top, top five right now in terms of pay. That's generally what works in sport. But that's generally not how the NBA championship works. It's just not. And the proof is everything I've just said. So keep an eye on that. I'll be running this back in a couple of weeks here when we have our, our finals set. And Scott, I'm sure we'll have plenty of data to bring that as well. Let's talk some college sports, name, image, likeness, and plenty more with Emily Karen from Sportico. All right. She's underscore EM Karen on Twitter. She is the sports business reporter for Sportico at Sportico on Twitter. Emily Karen, our friend of the show. Welcome back, Emily. Thanks for having me. You bet. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Look, we got through the uh, the college sports season for the most part. I think baseball's still cranking away, but, um, you know, nothing crazy out there. But look, it's bad times for the NCAA. <laughs> they, have, 
they've been run through the mill in terms of Supreme Courts and and, and this nil situation, the, the name, image, likeness, of course, which is why you're here. I sure hope you know what the heck's going on, because I have had so much trouble keeping up with state by state and who's where and who can have an agent and who can't have an agent and who can actually make money or who can just kind of uh, promote themselves for whatever, for marketing purposes. Where are we? I mean, kind of just give us the uh, the global look at this in terms of what happened with that Supreme Court decision. And then maybe we'll, we'll kind of, you know, dive into some more specifics if you have them available. Of course. Um, so the Supreme Court decision was not directly tied to NIL, but, you know, pretty impactful in terms of college athletics in general. Um, and there will definitely be some sort of tangential trickle down into NIL and the, the decisions and the rules that are made there. But what it did was basically by signing with Alston, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that, you know, the NCAA cannot limit educational benefits uh, for college athletes who are on scholarship. But more than that, it essentially established that the NCAA is not exempt from antitrust laws and regulations, which that is the bigger blow to the NCAA. And that is sort of where it could impact NIL in the sense of their argument is kind of that they're a, they're one entity and that they have to kind of keep this competitive balance and that they can't be sued because they're, you know, for doing things that limit that because they're exempt from antitrust legislation, which they no longer are, um, at least according to this, the precedent set by the Supreme Court ruling. In terms of NIL itself, we are rapidly approaching July 1st, as we all know. I mean, I feel like time has flown by, but on July 1, there are at least six states as of right now where legislation will go into effect. What the NCAA does in between now and then is still kind of up in the air. They were supposed to be meeting um, I believe it was yesterday and today, which they earlier this week, um, some people who are familiar with those negotiations told us they had kind of pushed those back and set some time aside on Monday now to discuss and potentially vote on some you know NCAA level NIL legislation. But who knows? I think they're taking time right now to kind of digest the ruling and its impact and what the fallout's going to be and also probably what their approach is for July 1. Is anybody actually ready for this? <laughs> I mean, are, are the players are, you know, I imagine that there are companies being formed and have, you know, have been now for some time that are, that are ready to leverage, to value these players, to market, to brand these players. But if you, I know Sportico has done some work with, with college athletes specifically, and it doesn't seem like they have a handle on how this is going to certainly not July 1st roll out, but even, you know, in the next couple of years or so, what it actually means to them. Does it mean they can go and get a job if you're not, you know, the star quarterback? Does it mean, because I know that's a problem. You, if you're on scholarship with the division one college, you really can't go make secondary money. I imagine that's something that will change now with this, with this overturn. Is that correct? Yeah, I think all of that, I mean, the, the issue at the heart of this is that no one actually knows what the rules are going to be, Yeah. right? Because even if you start operating in the mindset of I'm going to, you know, figure out what my state rules or laws are right. and what I am allowed to do within that context, there's a good chance that, you know, at some point, even if there's not NCAA legislation right away, that that will supersede or somehow have to intersect with your state law or that eventually there will be a federal bill. Um, that you will have to abide by. And Congress has kind of already taken a step back and said they're not going to do anything before July 1. Um, 
but at some point it could come. And so I think the issue at hand is that there's no set of rules yet. There's no uniformity and there's no kind of cohesion that athletes can track and follow. Now, there are companies, like you said, who are really preparing for this pretty aggressively. I mean, I I swear I get, you know, in my inbox, you know, five different press releases a day of some new company working in the NIL space. But you look at the bigger players, especially, you know, influencer and open doors who have partnerships with probably the, between the two of them, the majority of D1, at least power five programs. And they're, you know, partnering with different marketplaces that, you know, facilitate endorsement deals for pros right now, or, you know, financial literacy programs. And they're really trying to prepare as much as possible. But even by bringing those partners on board, none of those partners know, just like you and I don't know, what kind of framework they're really going to have to operate within. So everyone is kind of trying to prepare, you know, in the broadest sense possible right now. And certainly the states that we're hearing, the Texas is the, the California's, the, the Florida's, it makes sense for them to jump all over this. I mean, they've got many of the star athletes in the major sports. So there's, there's a lot to be promoted here, but I, I just can't, I can't wrap my head around the fact that some states are going to be in and some states are not. That just seems like such a competitive disadvantage in a, in a situation where now with this transfer portal situation, it's like free agency out there. So why wouldn't a star athlete leave Illinois to go to Florida if Florida's got their stuff together with this with, with the NIL? I mean, I just how can the how can the NCAA specifically, but I guess you know the federal government now that they're involved a little bit, how can they allow the states to sort of handle this themselves, knowing that 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 disadvantage is going to cre- be created immediately? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I am of the personal opinion and I am, I am all for NIL and, you know, athlete empowerment, but also just kind of, you know, freedom for some of these athletes. I think they're pretty restricted right now, um, which is not really how any other employment or or marketplace, you know, even in athletics works um, outside of the NCAA and the collegiate model. But at the end of the day, I don't think we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars for most athletes, right? I firmly believe that there's there are going to be opportunities for all athletes, whether those are non-revenue athletes, um, you know, participate in Olympic sports or women's sports or whatever it is. But I think we're talking about, you know, the opportunity to run a camp or a clinic in your hometown mm. or the opportunity to go eat at a local restaurant in your market and get your meal comped, you know, for in exchange for posting on Instagram about the restaurant or whatnot. You know, so I I think we're probably talking about a pretty select group of athletes who's going to be able to, you know, make significantly more money in one market versus the other. But for those bigger sports, you know, we actually, we were thinking about doing a story. We wanted to see if there was anything there about recruiting and how it's already impacted the recruiting landscape. And our data reporter, Lev, who's fantastic, he went through and actually looked at like, you know, in the, in Florida, looked at the big Florida football schools, you know, Florida State, UF, and looked at their incoming recruiting classes. There's really no difference in the rankings. And so I don't know that we're at a point yet where there's, you know, data or even anecdotal evidence to support that like there's going to be this mass migration. But if we're a year in and athletes are really starting to make money and yeah. things are starting to pick up steam and, you know, six states or seven states or eight or whatever it is a year from now, then I think there could be a different conversation. I think right now there's just so much uncertainty and, you know, athletes don't know 
how their market is going to respond to NIL, how businesses in their market are going to respond to NIL or want to get involved, you know, or even what it's going to look like. So I think we're maybe too early to, you know, see an immediate wave of this. But I, you know, if this is the status quo a year from now, it's definitely going to be a different story. It's going to be nuts. It's so, somebody's yeah. going to jump on this. There's 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 an athlete out there right now who's who's in the right hands, who is being promoted. You know what I mean? Is is practicing for this day, <laughs> and and I, and I can tell you what kind of campaign it's going to be, or or what you know what it's going to look like. But whatever it is, and whoever it is, is going to be the guinea pig and the model. For like I said, those those star athletes in Illinois or those star athletes in Kansas that are going to turn to their people and say, what the hell is going on, right? Like, how the heck can't we get on this? And then they find out their state won't allow them to. And that's when the transfer portal is going to become a disaster zone, in my opinion. I'm, I'm really worried for that. Um, and I hope that the professional leagues sort of see this happening and change their ways to just say, hey, if these guys are promoting themselves and trying to make this much money at that level, let's just get them on our level and let them actually make money. Because I, I do think that's a saving grace in all of this, but certainly a different story. Um, you mentioned the social media push. Emily, I, I, I actually think that if that's going to be how many of these athletes will choose to go. It won't be, get me a commercial or give me a, you know, give me a sell my jerseys or all that stuff. It's going to be, I want a million Instagram followers. Because once I have that, everything I do is going to be important. You know what I mean? Like just going to a store and talking about it on Instagram is going to make me a little bit more famous. Is is that something you're hearing that that the companies that can do this and can really amplify followers in terms of social media are going to be really, really tapped into in terms of when this opens up? For sure. And I think a lot of it is actually going to come down to more the athletes themselves. I think there are a lot of companies out there who athletic departments have already partnered with who are kind of giving these athletes the resources and the tools and kind of teaching them the, the tips and tricks that they need to kind of maximize and optimize their platforms. Um, but I think a lot of it is just going to come down to the athletes themselves, right? And, you know, how much do they want to establish a personal brand? Because that personal brand is really what's going to be the most marketable. Um, you know, we're talking about, we've heard from companies who, you know, they're already feeling interest from brands who are, you know, a fishing company. I don't know, say this off the top of my head, based in Florida. And, you know, they're not looking for the star athlete, but they're looking for the kid on the football team who fishes on the weekends. You know, so it's not just going to be about what is done on the field or on the court. I think there's going to be opportunity for these athletes to kind of tap into their, you know, whether it's their, their hobbies or their personal interests or just their identity outside of sports and make some money as well. That's great. But I think a lot of it's going to come back to social. Yeah, of course. That's where it's going to end up no matter how it starts. No question about it. Um, is there anything else we should know? I mean, do you have, do you, what states are involved right now? So right now, uh, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, <laughs> Georgia. I'm seeing a trend. New Mexico and Texas yeah. have passed legislation that will all go into effect on July 1st. Okay. Texas is actually the newest addition to that group. They were initially, the legislation they proposed was going to go into effect September 1. And then I think they basically were like, look, it's going to be September. We might as well be July with everyone else. Um, but yes, there definitely is a trend. You know, there's a lot of big name schools, big name football, big name basketball schools in those markets for sure. Okay. Nothing has been, nothing has come to fruition with the actual compensation for athletes, correct? And, and do you, and do you think that's going to change or, or are we on a path where that's off the table? 
You know, I think in terms of athlete compensation and like revenue sharing and whatnot, a lot of that discussion was happening at the federal level yeah. in terms of federal legislation. And I think, you know, it's what some senators have said, come on said, is that the conversation just sort of got too broad, you know, outside of NIL for them to be able to make a comprehensive bill and step in by July 1. But I do think those will probably still be part of the discussions moving forward if there is a federal intervention at some point, you know, but those discussions go beyond just athlete compensation and NIL earnings. Those go into, you know, scholarship extensions and medical benefits and kind of comprehensive care um, and treatment of an athlete within the NCAA. So I do think if we say, see federal legislation at some point, it's going to go much further than just um, NIL and, you know, monetization of, a, of the personal brand. If, if a school has, if, an, if a university has a partnership with Gatorade and an athlete is approached by vitamin water. Can that happen? Or is this, is there going to be a lot of politics just between student and school here, which is going to restrict that, that, that athlete's actual abilities? Yeah. So that, I mean, as of right now, that would depend on your state's individual laws. Mm. Each state is a little bit different uh, in terms of their restrictions and their allowances, but in terms of the NCAA's current proposal, or at least the working proposal that they were supposed to vote on in January and then pushed back until this week and now pushed back until next week. Um, that one does allow schools to have some restrictions around direct competitors. Mm. You know, so if you're the star quarterback at Texas, you can't go. I don't know if Texas is, I think Texas is an IP school, but you couldn't go sign a deal with Under Armour. Um, so there will be, and those I think they're calling quote unquote guardrails, there will be some of those around the deals and what's allowed. Yeah, I have so many questions. I just don't want to get too down in the weeds with this. Um, to me, the biggest the biggest constraint is that there's only six states involved. Um, what, what specifically is holding up other states? Is it that they're just trying to let these states kind of figure it out and, and build a plan so that they can piggyback off of it? Not, not unlike, by the way, the uh, the college football season we just went through, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. this, is the, this is the conference that just decided to push ahead and everybody else decided, hey, that's actually working out. Let's get in. Is that exactly what we're dealing with here? I think in part. Um, I mean, I think you saw California was the first state to pass this legislation, right? They're the ones who kind of got this state-by-state -state sweep rolling. But when they passed their legislation, they didn't pass it to go into effect until 2023. Yes. So I don't, I think, I don't know that any state at the start intended for this to start this early. And then Florida was like, hello, we're going to start in 2021. And then everyone was like, oh, shoot, let's get on that same bandwagon. But... On the flip of that, you know, the NCAAs first said that they were going to allow some sort of name, image, and likeness compensation back in 2019. So it's been a long time since that statement was first made. And then, you know, they formed one working committee and then a second working committee. And then those committees, you know, took their proposals to the, you know, D1 Council and then it was more conversations. And the NCAA's internal process is just very slow moving. And I think that's when you started to see states step in and say, okay, we're starting in 2021, whether the NCAA is ready or not, because, you know, who knows when the NCAA otherwise would have made their own legislation. And I think some states you're seeing, you know, some states don't have any um, proposed legislation on the books. I think a lot of those states, you know, either have smaller schools or don't really have 
you know, the kind of big college sports programs in their state. So it's not as much of a priority for them. Others are just, you know, still debating the details of it. And there's legislation that's been proposed and that's going to be voted on soon. And I'm sure as more states, you know, push to this July 1 start, others could, you know, bring their, their proposed start dates forward. But it's just really, you know, I think dependent on the state and the state of college athletics within their territory and also what they expect the NCAA to do. I think a lot of states expected the NCAA to have stepped in by now. So they were just waiting because they're like, why are we going to put this work into a, a state bill when the NCAA is going to supersede our decision in six months anyway? And then the NCAA keeps stalling. Yeah. So do you believe that's actually going to no happen? Knows. Because I don't. There's just not a track record for them doing the right thing with that kind of thing. Honestly, I really don't know. I think. I think it's too big happens, a pill to swallow for them. Happens on, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a fair argument. Um, if nothing happens on Monday, I think nothing will happen by July 1. And then I think you could get into the territory, you know, questioning, does the NCAA start suing individual states to stall their legislation so we don't have this incredibly unequal playing field? But, you know, honestly, I think that would be a terrible press move for them. I don't know that that would go over very well or work in their favor. Um, So who knows? I think this next week will be very telling. I think Mark Emmert's out before that, before any sort of federal or NCAA, you know, legislation is passed on this. I think well, that's they did the, just sign him to an extension. I saw. So. Oh, oh, they love buyouts, though. They love oh, buyouts yeah. in the in NCAA sports. Uh, you know, a cynic, a cynic could say that they're trying to give him some job security so that he's more comfortable being the fall guy for all of this. But, Ooh. you know, that's a, we get into a little bit of some conspiracy <laughs> theory-esque. <laughs> we get go down that path. <laughs> Um, it does sound like, you know, many states are sitting there waiting to pounce. It's, it seems like there's been 18 or 19 states that have legislation, maybe even passed. They just don't have a plan in place yet. And they're kind of waiting to see how things form. Maybe even, you know, a week from now on July 1st, there'll be maybe an onslaught of other states that get involved, which would be good. I'd, I'd like to close that competitive gap as quickly as possible. Um, I think some states were waiting to see what the Supreme Court would rule yeah. this past week on the Austin case, too, because, like I said, there are definitely some tangential connections to NIL and, you know, different laws there. Um, I think people, it's kind of just a way, people would just took the wait and see approach because they thought, you know, either Congress or the NCAA would move first. Mm. But Jeez. Always procrastinating, right? The uh, right. last, I guess, last question here. You deal a lot with women's sports. Is this mm-hmm. situation going to be strictly every athlete for themselves or is there going to be any sort of, you know, we got actually, let me go more top level. Does the university, does this, does this, does the college have any leadership management uh, overseeing of this process at all? I think that when a deal is signed that a player is going to have to report that to the university and there's probably some back and forth there, but you know, is there any, we got to take care of our girl sports as much as we take care of our boy sports. We got to take care of rowing as much as we take care of basketball, even though I know that's laugh out loud. Um, is there any of that built into this or is it literally just a singular individual process? I think schools are going to be as far removed from this process as they can. Yeah. I think the current NCAA framework has them, you know, does not allow them to be involved in the actual deal making whatsoever or the facilitating of deals. Obviously, all those nuances still need to be sorted out, but I think this will go back to being every man for themselves or every woman for themselves. Um, there, some of the federal legislation that's been proposed does 
include like group licensing and other elements that are not in NCAA's current proposal and not in many of the actually any of the state's proposals to my knowledge but don't quote me on that um but group licensing would be an opportunity you know where the whole rowing team could do a deal together with you know i don't know who like what kind of company would connect with rowing but like even if it's like a women's apparel company you know the whole team could do a deal but that's not on the books right now um that said i think we saw and we saw this in march madness in particular a lot of these female athletes have bigger followings than their male counterparts. I was just going to ask media. that question. Can't they do better? Yeah. And a lot of them, I think, you know, we see this in women's pro sports as well. You know, there's not as much inherent coverage of their sport or their league or their team. And so a lot of these athletes take it upon themselves to be really active on social and right. really engaged and connected with their fans. And I think that could pay off in terms of NIL deals um, tremendously, you know, when we're talking about female athletes or Olympic sport athletes at the college level. The Olympics part of this is really interesting because it's always a, it's always a, a piggyback sort of situation, right? When, when all of these sports kind of come together and many of these athletes end up in, you know, off of their professional or amateur teams and in that spotlight, it really shines a light on whatever else they're involved with. So to, to have this happening three weeks before the Olympics to me is just a home run for these Crazy. athletes. It's just a total home run for these athletes. So let's stick on the women's side of it because you do such a nice work breaking down so many stories in that regard. What is happening? Uh, is it a, have we seen upticks? Have we seen positive steps forward with women's sports in general? You know, the WNBA, the, the NWSL. I, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing these leagues on, on bigger networks, I can tell you that. So that alone has to be promising. Definitely. And I think you're seeing, you know, the WNBA, well, I guess it was two years, almost two years ago now, totally revamped its marketing strategy. You know, their new commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, came in and actually said the WNBA has a marketing problem. And she has made it her mission to kind of turn that around. I think she's launched a new kind of sponsorship platform where they're asking companies to come in and not only be financial partners, but help them with whatever that company's specialty is. You know, whether your specialty is, you know, search and internet or whether your specialty, like a Google or whether your specialty mm -hmm. is, you know, financial services, you know, how can that play a bigger part and how can these partnerships be more than just money? You're seeing the same thing, I think, um, in the NWSL, you're seeing a lot of traction there and a big push kind of to promote their athletes in these stories. And I think women's sports leagues are just doing a much better job of like actively promoting themselves than we saw in the past. I think in the past it was very scrappy, very startup-y, very, you know, get what airtime we can, but now they've really started to establish brands and value. And on the flip of that, I think, you know, potential partners and sponsors are starting to see the female sports audience is incredibly connected to their teams and their leagues. And it's a very devoted fan base. And that devoted fan base also makes them, you know, avid consumers and purchasers of products related to those teams. And goods that are connected to whatever's going on you know they will watch on twitch if twitch is the only place that they That's can watch right. you know because they're and part of that is by default because they haven't been able to watch their favorite leagues or shows you know on espn for a long time so they have kind of become almost like the future of fans fans who are very fluid fans who are very tech savvy fans who are you know streamers instead of just you know yes. linear tv consumers yes. and Look, fans I, I, that 
are huge fans of e-commerce because they're not going to you a mass it. arena where there's a retail store there. I just and read your piece on this. Yeah, where you where you yeah. interviewed the fan project and and you're talking about this revenue growth. And to me, the takeaway is simple this. It's quantity over qual over quality or quality over quantity, right? I mean, yeah. yes, the men's sports drive more quantity, but many of those are still guys sitting in a freaking recliner with a beer you know, not interacting, just simply enjoying and watching a sporting event. And when you have a fan base that is definitely smaller, there's no getting around that, but they are engaged. They are already online. That is such a huge advantage to a, to a buyer, to a, to a publisher, to a marketer where it's just a click away. I'm already here. I'm already engaged. There, there has to be such a better conversion rate for those kind of models. Right. And I think the, the issue was just no one had done the research before. No one had ridiculous. actually taken the time. I know to step back and examine the, you know, the audience, the fans of women's sports and see what kind of consumers they are, what kind of viewers they are. And, you know, there's a lot of that data on the men's side, but all of that comes from like linear TV and viewership numbers. Right. When you watch the Super Bowl two days later, there's all these right. stories about how many viewers tuned into the Super the Bowl. The Nielsen ratings, right? Could anything be less right. important right now? Right. And I think you're seeing kind of an industry shift where people are realizing that, you know, linear TV is not very telling today. Like, I mean, I'm, I have never once had cable. <laughs> I have never, <laughs> I mean, I, right. No, but like I watch sports for a living and I have to be tuned in, but I have still not had to have cable at any point in my adult life. Like even, you know, I went to college, we didn't get cable. And so I'm like, there are so many other ways to consume content and I've never missed a sporting event, I've always been able to get it in other ways and through other streaming options. And so I think the point is like, you know, they're missing all of these consumers who operate, you know, like I do and like other cord cutters do. And so I think it's just not a telling metric anymore, but it was still the metric for some reason that the industry relied on. And hopefully now that will change. And I think if that changes, that benefits women's sports leagues because they're already operating in this whole other space outside of linear TV. There's no question. I mean, if the United States women win soccer and basketball in the Olympics and their respective leagues don't bank off that heavily, <laughs> something is, is devastatingly wrong with the process because right. this is the year. It's all set up perfectly for them right now. So it's, uh, it, there's definitely major steps forward. And like I said, to me, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing is I'm seeing the WA and ESPN. I'm seeing WNSL on CBS and CBS Sports Network. I'm seeing them on, on primetime, premier you know, time slots. That's really good news. And it means that there's some sort of analytics internally with those networks that say this is definitely worth our time. So big steps forward for sure. And you are all over it. Underscore EM Karen on Twitter. She's all over Sportico, of course. Emily, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. My thanks to Emily. She's underscore EM Karen on Twitter. A great follow, a great read, always constantly publishing interesting sports business articles at Sportico. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription today. And of course, Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, empowering professional athletes with financial solutions for pre and post draft processes. MorganStanley.com slash GSE. Get you started there. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Chinetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast.